This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. This is Robert Blumen, editor of Software Engineering Radio. If you're hearing this, that means you're a listener of the show. But have you ever thought about being a host? It's a great way to talk to some of the most interesting people in the industry and get 30 to 40,000 people to hear your thoughts. Contact us, team at se-radio.net, for more information. Are you looking for a better way to track your engineering backlog? Do you want a project management tool that's both powerful and a joy to use? Give Clubhouse a try. Designed for software teams, Clubhouse is a fast, modern alternative to conventional project management tools that are either too complex or too simple. Start your free trial and get two extra free months at clubhouse.io slash se radio. Hello, this is Adam Gordon-Bell for Software Engineering Radio. Today, I'm speaking with Gabriel Gonzalez, creator of the DAL configuration language and author of popular blog, Haskell for All. Gabe, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Also, thank you for having me on this. It's an honor to be here. Oh, that's great to hear. So today, we'll be talking about configuration and configuration programming languages and, and one called DAL that, that you have created. I think eventually we'll get into complicated configuration problems, but I'd like to start off with some some simple definitions. So what is configuration in the world of software development? So I, I like to think of it in terms of what's the problem that configuration files or configuration formats solve. Configuration files often arise when we want the end user to make changes to our software without needing to install any sort of programming language tool chain or having to rebuild a new executable and so forth, because those sorts of requirements are non-starters for most of our end users who might be non-technical, for example. Sometimes you can kind of avoid those issues. So for example, if your programming language is interpreted, then like, for example, like JavaScript, where the interpreter is their browser, then it might be fine to write, to just configure the program in the same language. Um, in fact, you see lots of like, you know, live, you know, test HTML, CSS, JavaScript combinations um, in your browser. And that works because the user already has the interpreter installed. So there's no other expectation from them. Um, on the other hand, if your, if your host programming language is say Haskell, which has, which is a compiled language usually, um, has a very large sprawling tool chain, you might not want to ask users to install that if they want to configure your program. So that's the kind, that's the high level requirement for that configuration design to solve, make it easy for users to customize program behavior um, with little to no effort on their part. Uh, ideally, it should be in a format that's easy for them to understand, easy to modify, doesn't require too much technical understanding or expertise. So that, that's how I think of configuration languages. So in your job, like what type of things, like what's an example of something you would put in configuration so users could modify that? An example of a, I don't know if this really qualifies as a configuration, but at our job, we distribute sets of content for, for network threat hunting for a cybersecurity startup. Users can create sort of like little mini programs, kind of like Wireshark-like, but a little bit more powerful. They can publish and subscribe to them. And those packages of program definitions are kind of, uh, in this case, they're, they're DAW files, but you could think of them maybe like JSON files, right? They're just sort of like lists of records. Each record contains like maybe some definition, some metadata, stuff like that, just some configuration. That's an example of what we do. We might use it for at work. Another example might be like um, deployment configuration, right? Like saying like, you know, I want all these machines to have this particular setting. There's, you know, X machines here, their IP addresses, host names, so forth. That's another example of a common configuration scenario, that, at least as that arises at our work. What's the most complicated configuration file that you've come across? Probably, I think Kubernetes is usually the one that most people think of when they think of complicated configuration, at least like in open source. When I worked at Twitter, Twitter had some very large configurations. For example, Twitter had its own um, uh, internal, build, well, technically open source tool, but it was mostly used by Twitter called Pants, which is kind of like a, a Python version of, of Bazel, like Google's uh, build tool. 
and the the build configurations there for like for all Twitter's model repo were uh, quite large uh, as well. And what what type of problems or are there problems with a very large and complex configuration that you might see with a Kubernetes config? Very large and repetitive. So I'm sure many people in the audience might be familiar with the design principle of don't repeat yourself. Besides the fact that software engineers or programmers in, gen in general are lazy, right? We want the computer to do more of the work for us. So we don't want to repeat ourselves. But it's not just out of laziness and authoring the configuration file, but it's also laziness in maintaining it. Because if you make a, if, if you keep copying and pasting configuration sections over and over, I saw this a lot of Twitter, for example, for pants, right? There are a lot of people who did, just didn't really understand the configuration language for bills. Like, you know, pants wasn't used very much outside of Twitter. So when they joined, they weren't really sure how to use it. So they just take, they just copy and paste configuration sections from things that they knew to work and then slightly tweak them. And the problem when you do that, well, there's several problems. One is that it's like, it's harder to maintain because now anytime you need to make a change, you need to find all the copy and pasted versions and make the matching change. Second, you're not even really sure if it's the right thing to do to modify all the matching versions. Because when you copy and paste something, you lose the original intent, right? Because mm -hmm. you're, you're basically, when you create an exact replica of the original configuration section, are you really saying, I want all these configuration fields to be exactly these ones? Or are you really saying, I want it to be the same as that thing over there with this one tweak? That in the, in the, in the course of copying and pasting it, you lose that information, that intention. That makes sense. That's my experience working with uh, well, builds in general. Like uh, whenever I need to get a new Jenkins build going, I feel like I find a similar service and and start with whatever it had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. So besides doll, which we'll get into, like what formats are are most popular for configuration? It depends on the domain. So for example, for build tools like Python or Bazel, it tends to be a custom format. Like I think Skylark or Pants had like this Python-ish language. Nix is another is another analogous thing to Bazel. It has its own custom language. For ops, YAML and JSON, very common in that domain. For like Unix software development, maybe any files or maybe some ad hoc format like the ALSA audio configuration format. Those, yeah, so it really depends a lot on the domain. But in the in, I at work, I do a lot of ops and infrastructure related stuff. So I tend to interact more with JSON and YAML as configuration format. You mentioned this problem that, that YAML can have, I assume, or, or JSON or INI files is, is the duplication of you know, repetitive code or repetitive configuration. So one solution I've seen for this in the past is like, you know, like a C++ uh, application will use like Lua as its configuration language or uh, like Chef uses Ruby, right? So you're like, yeah. hey, I have the full power of a programming language at my fingertips, right? So is that a good idea? Are there downsides to that? So one of the upsides of that is that you can deliver a lot of customization potential to users. And I think one of the more commonly cited downsides, even if the language is easy to distribute, easy to interpret, is that it can lead to configuration files which are very difficult for people to understand. Because there's a tension in software engineering in general and also for programming languages or configuration formats specifically, which is that generally the easier you make it to write something, the harder you make it for other people to read. Uh, and vice versa, the easier, the, the more you, you force it to be easy to read, the more you have to constrain it and make it harder to write. So generally the more powerful the configuration format the more difficult it can be for other people to understand or comprehend what's going on. And that's what you don't want in a configuration format. You want it to be easy to understand, easy to analyze. Because very often, configuration file mistakes are one of the mo most common sources of outages and production failures. There's a post written by, I believe, Dan Liu, where he talked about postmortems at Google. And the, I believe he said that one of the most common sources of runtime failures was just due to invalid configuration files. And often people don't test or review configuration files uh, to the same standard that they do code. And that's one of the reasons why it can be difficult to safely change them. And so that's why you want configuration files to be very easy to comprehend so that um, it makes it easier to understand and potentially prevent these sorts of uh, runtime failures. You mentioned, I think before, that you work on some sort of network security product. I, I assume that there could also be concerns that 
if I'm allowing a full interpreter to run in my configuration layer, that that could be a, a security risk. Do you view that as such? Or Yes. There, in fact, one thing I haven't talked about is so far, I've been kind of implicitly assuming that we're configuring, let's say, an executable that the user has installed our system. But there's other ways we can deliver code to users. So for example, like we could host a service that either the users interact with directly through an API or a front-end web app that interacts with that service indirectly for us. Or maybe we're delivering JavaScript code, which the user is running in their own browser. And we don't want to, and, and especially in the case where we're running a service hosted in our own data center, accepting API calls from potentially untrusted users, um, we don't want to be running arbitrary code, which the users are handing to us. That's a huge security vulnerability. So for example, they, that could be used to maybe just delete stuff on our production servers or leak secrets or do all sorts of harmful things. So we really want to restrict what configuration formats can do in order to keep the whatever environment they're executing in as safe as possible. So are you speaking of a, a scenario in which you have a cloud-hosted service, but various customers can provide, like bring their own configuration to the service? Yeah, exactly. I, ideally, I want to make that possible. That's, that's one of my goals. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't come across that before. So it sounds like to me there is there's configuration that's like declarative on one side that you're talking about that's like YAML. And then on the other side, there is like using something much more flexible. And you're saying the downside, there's a trade-off, right? One's easier to read, one's easier to write. To write. Okay, yeah. So what does Doll bring to this distinction, I guess? What is Doll's reason for existing? So Doll's sine qua non is that uh, Doll is not Turing complete. So it's funny because the, the way Doll originated was just to answer a very common question I had when reading posts, like let's say on the programming subreddit or Hacker News or Twitter, where people would be arguing about the virtues of various configuration approaches. Like should we use just an inert file format like JSON or YAML? Should we use a full-blown programming language to customize our configurations? And one of the very common themes that comes out of those discussions is that when people talked about, when people would say that you need to use a programming language to configure it because they need the full power, the most common counter to that was, I don't want to use a configuration format that's Turing complete. I'm not exactly sure whether people actually cared about Turing completeness per se, or maybe it was just like a, an umbrella for other things that they actually cared about. But I decided to ask the question, you know, okay, what if I gave you a programming language that was not Turing complete to configure your programs. Would you, and so it would give you all the expressivity you want, but enough restriction that you couldn't do dumb things in this language. Would you still be okay with that? And it turns out like some people thought, yeah, that is exactly the balance that I was trying to strike. What, what does it mean for a language to be not Turing complete? I mean, so there's a pedantic definition, but I'll just say, I think it's close enough to say that you can't, if, if it's not Turing complete, then all programs can halt, or at least you can you can statically know if they're going to halt. In practice, for Doll, it just means that all programs are going to halt. It doesn't guarantee things like when it's going to halt. Right? Could take longer than the heat death of the universe. I'll be dead by then before it halts. Right? But at least says that at some point, if we wait long enough, is is going to terminate. Right? It's not going to go into an endless loop or hang or anything like that. I'm trying to fit this in the context of what you said earlier. So there's a full programming language. Yeah. And then there's a declarative format. And then uh, you're saying the advantage of Doll is that it can complete running. Whatever the step is that turns it into a declarative format is is limited. Yes. Like if I had a Ruby file that was my configuration, if I was actually able to just run it and then at the end it produced YAML, then that would be an, an inert format. By evaluating it, I've made it inert. Well, it's not just like if, if all you have to do is just run like a... Doll is something that Ruby does not do, right? Because if your, your result is just a record, then you can technically run any programming language to produce that record. That makes sense. I'd like to maybe approach what Doll looks like by by comparing it maybe to something simpler. So if I were to write like a, a JSON format, right, then like I have access to um, a certain amount of primitive types, right? And I kind of build up like a, an object structure, like a, I guess it's basically like a tree, but you can nest things inside of each other. So what primitives does Doll have for, for holding data? So first off, it has 
the same primitives JSON has. It has records, or I guess what some people might call dictionaries or maps. It has lists, it has strings, it has bools. It has unlimited precision integers, which is, a, is a very important when you're comparing to JSON, which, yeah. which uh, <laughs> and it, it basically has like, it also has some things which JSON does not have. So it has a built-in support for enum. So you don't have to use a string. You can like statically declare it can only be one of these possible values. It actually supports a generalization of enums, which are, I think, commonly called sum types. Mm -hmm. You can say statically, it can only be one of these possible types of values. And there can be maybe a payload associated with each alternative type it could be. And they're tagged, so you know which one you're looking at. Uh, and whenever you're trying to inspect it to decide what to do with it. You can actually like kind of just convert a JSON file to a DAW file by like replacing colons with equals and maybe uh, removing quotes around the, the key names or field names in, diction in dictionaries, and then it, they both kind of look the same. Oh, wow. But it, it doesn't stop there, right? Because I I think that I saw type annotations on, is that correct? Is there a typing aspect to the language? Yes. So DAL is a real programming language. So um, a lot of things that are normally done separately in for configuration formats configuration formats like JSON are built into the language. So for example, in a, what a configuration format would call a schema, like JSON schema, uh, is just a type annotation in DAL. So that, that's the DAL analog of a schema. And same thing with, like, with templating, right? So a template in DAL is just a function whose input is a record of things you want to use to template with, and whose output is a string that has been where you've interpolated the things that you want to template. So because Doll's real programming language, like it doesn't need to add special case support for a lot of these features, which configuration formats have to add on. They're just built in by virtue of being a real language. So it starts, it has these basic data types. It has some additional types. Then it has type annotations. And then you've mentioned functions. So this is where we start to cross into more of a, a programming language type concept, right? Yes. Now we're evaluating things. We're passing in arguments. So you can define functional, well, the primitive there is an anonymous function. So like what Python programmers might call Lambda, and you can optionally assign names to anything, including anonymous functions. So they're no longer anonymous. So you can give them names and you can apply them to arguments just like in a programming language. And they're highly restricted, right? So because it's not Turing complete, a function cannot call itself recursions banned from the language and also supports variables. So you can use a let to say like let x equals one, and now you can refer to x over and over again instead of having to repeat yourself. Presumably it's more useful if x is something bigger than one, but <laughs> you get the idea. Is the is the purpose behind the functions to do with this original idea you mentioned, like taking the repetitiveness out of a configuration format? Is that is that why bringing functions to this format is valuable? Yes. The primary reason is, again, going back to, we don't want to repeat ourselves, both to make it easier to write, easier to maintain, and easier to preserve the original intent. If we have a single source of truth for everything in the format, then whenever we need to make a change, we only need to change one place in the code base. And it may not sound like a big deal when you're a small company, but when you work in a large company like Twitter in a monorepo, which has a huge number of files, then being able to centralize all logic in one place is a very big deal. In fact, I remember back when I was at Twitter, someone just went through Twitter and then studied like, what was the largest, like what were the most commonly used programming languages at the company by, by lines of code? So third place was Java, second place was Scala, and first place, Technically, not a language was YAML. So YAML, <laughs> my lines of code, was far and away the largest source of code in quotes in the code base, and that was again because you just YAML didn't have facilities to remove repetition, so they just had to add a whole bunch of weight, and that weight reduces your agility as a company. In fact, had, every time we had these large changes and refactors we had to do at, at the company, we would take like our, our crack programmers, our principal engineers who would use like these uh, you know, um, powerful text transformation tools that they would run over the entire code base, which I think was like 
maybe 40 gigabytes in size of the toy. That's just code, not any binaries, anything like that. And then they put up these gigantic pull requests where everybody would get pinged on them because like they'd be touching every single project and everybody was a code owner for, code owner for something that had been touched by that pull request. And then the, the pull request description would say something like, you know, I haven't really checked this. I just did this automatic transformation and I guess it builds and I'm, I'm not going to wait for everybody to approve all these changes. I'm just going to like merge after a few days if nobody objects. And that was kind of like what people had to do when you don't have any facilities for managing uh, large amounts of repetition. Yeah, that sounds horrible. Programming by search and replace, basically. Yes. So I, I'm thinking back to your original scenario and maybe the story you just talked about. So um, like you have all these, everybody's copying and pasting somebody else's build file with a bunch of YAML in it. So now that we have functions, I'm guessing we can, like, what do we do? Do we extract it out to some common location where, and then all I have to do is, is basically call some build function and pass in like the couple of differences that my project has. Is that the use case? Yes. So yeah, here's an interesting example, right? Let's say you're trying to distribute a package, right? An open source package, right? Usually there's a lot of boilerplate for, for open source packages that's shared between them. Like let's say a lot of Haskell projects, um, especially for companies are just, you know, follow a simple framework of like wrapping some, some choice of server. Maybe they pick a, pick a blessed server library, maybe a blessed JSON handling library and I don't know what are other blessed libraries, right? And they just will say, we all want these projects to follow the same format. And with just a few tweaks, maybe just change the package name, change the list of modules in this project. But otherwise we want them all to use the standard format. But in practice, you just have to like keep copying and pasting the cabal file to follow that exact format. And again, you run into the same issues as before. It'd be nice if you could just have a central say like, this is the blessed set of packages for novice Haskell programmers to write a web server that does something useful. And it's just a function, right? Give me the name of your package, give me a few other parameters and I'll just do the rest for you and you can get going, right? That's the dream right there. And not just providing and not just providing that function, but providing it in an easy to obtain format. Because um, one feature that DAL provides is the ability to import uh, configuration file formats. Mm. If you've ever used YAML, I know lots of companies, I think Twitter included, if I remember correctly, like they hacked together some non-standard thing feature into YAML to import files or include support, which is missing from the YAML standard in order to um, distribute the configuration over multiple files. Yeah, the imports kind of closes that makes it. So now I can pull in from some location. So can I, what kind of locations can I pull in from? Is it like my local path? Is it the web? Is it GitHub or? So doll lets you import from local file paths. So like relative paths, absolute paths. You can import from environment variables, arbitrary expressions. You can also import from the web. So you can import, given a URL, which hosts a UTF-8 doll, encoded doll source code, you can just fetch an expression from that and it will embedded into the program as if you had just written it there. What's neat about DAL is, is not just the fact that you can import from remote uh, expressions safely, but the actual syntax for doing so. Like a lot of programming languages, the way you import something is you say like at the top of your file, you know, import foo.bar from some package and bring these names into scope and so forth. In DAL, like given some a path to some other expression, if it's like a local path or a URL, you can just copy and paste that anywhere in the syntax tree. It'll be as if you had copy and pasted, I mean, in a principal way, as if you had embedded that expression directly there into this, in the syntax tree. Ah, interesting. So you can say like one plus example.com slash foo, right? And if example.com slash foo contains a number in it, it will fetch that number and add it to one. And then that's, it's a very lightweight way of distributing, of publishing expressions and subscribing to them. You don't need to like, you know, create some package with some metadata file and upload it to some package repository and then add it as a dependency and install it, right? You just, you know, create a URL, paste it, and that's the mechanism of distribution. It's It seems very flexible. I can understand how this would be great, removing all this duplication within Twitter. I guess possibly it sounds like it could bring up more security ramifications because now I'm pulling an arbitrary code into my configuration process. Yes, so Doll's support for importing from URLs is is the most controversial feature of the language, but the language is actually language was built from the ground up to take into account language security, uh, security concerns. So 
probably the strongest thing that the language offers is that it's not only not Turing complete, because like, again, Turing complete is just sort of an umbrella term for things that we actually care about. It's a sandbox language, meaning it's pure. So you can't actually like really do anything in DAL other than compute a pure value, right? The only side effects the language permits is to fetch things from, uh, from URLs or from file paths or so forth. Right? But it can't, for example, it can't delete a file. You can't use it to upload something to like some secret sensitive file or secret to S3. You also, and like you, you know, I'm sure of many people in the audience are thinking like, oh, I'm pretty sure I could craft some clever <laughs> way to exfiltrate data like through choice of headers or things or the choice of the path that I that I choose to import from. But Doll actually is already is a step ahead of you. Has already thought through that. So for example, um, remote paths or any path really cannot be computed. So you can't leak program state through the choice of to the choice of path that you request. Paths are resolved. All paths are strictly resolved. So you can't use the whether or not a path was requested to determine what the state of the program was. If paths can be pinned, so like if you import something from, actually all paths, even, even local ones, but especially remote ones, they can be protected with a hash, which is technically called a semantic integrity check. And if the, and that essentially freezes the import so that if the import ever changes in any way, you will, the import will be rejected to prevent somebody from injecting new behavior into your program that you did not expect. So there's all sorts of protections in there that you wouldn't know from first glance just from hearing the fact that DAL allows you to import from URLs. Summer's longer days and slower pace invite us to pick up a book, follow our questions, and try our hand at something new. The work of modern software developers is evolving in ways that are both challenging and rewarding. As a developer, it's essential that you cultivate a security mindset. To help, we put together a collection of information security books, podcasts, blogs, and hands-on exercises recommended by Vericoders across our development, security, and product teams. From a just-published page-turner to classic frack articles, there's something here for everyone who's interested in becoming more security-minded. So dip your toes in or take a deep dive. Visit www.vericode.com summer today. When DAL gets imported into some language after it's been evaluated, right? It, it, it exists as like, I'm assuming some sort of dictionaries of values. At the time the configuration comes into your language, you have some sort of inert data structures and DAL has support for that, but also has support for functions so that you can take out duplication and then import so that you can kind of hold these, mm -hmm. these things somewhere else that can be shared. And then you can use that to import things that can be from anywhere, it can be from the web, and that sounds yeah. scary, but you're saying, oh, but remember I said it's it's non-Turing complete. So there's no way that it can like loop forever when I try to import some of some code. And then you also said that it's pure. So explain pure. Pure means it has very limited set of side effects. So I mean pure really depends on what matters to the programmer, right? So like everything technically has side effects, right? You know, I'm taking up CPU or RAM or network bandwidth or disk, or maybe I'm modifying some registers under the hood because that's how everything's implemented. So it really depends on what matters to the programmer. So pure in this context means that we're sort of ignoring performance characteristics, right? Maybe, maybe some languages would care about performance characteristics, like Rust, for example. And I'm also deciding that like, I don't really care about fetching things from URL, because like, especially if I pin it with a hash, it's basically pure, right? It doesn't really matter where I get it from, as long as the final result is the same and matches that hash, right? It's, it's effectively pure. So we, we sort of have like a, a set of blessed side effects and non-blessed side effects. So the blessed side effects are evaluation, fetching things. The non-blessed side effects are things like deleting files, uploading things, anything harmful that a malicious code could use to um, somehow exploit our system. So pure is, is uh, an imprecise term, which just means that like it's it's safe to reuse as a configuration language. Because the end result of the evaluation will always just be this inert data structure. So it won't be writing things to disk or et cetera. Ex well, even then it can, there's a cache. So like when you protect something with integrity check, then since we know it's never going to change, we can just cache it in a content addressable store locally so that we never need to fetch it again. And again, that slightly improves security because then it means we only need to fetch something once. And then people after that, we never need to make a remote outbound call ever again. But even then, like it's a content addressable store. It's append only. So it's, it's effectively pure from the user's point of view, right? It's just the transparent optimization as far as they're concerned.
I think that you mentioned earlier that it would be possible to write a doll configuration that that never completed. Is that a concern? Something that we should be concerned about with this tool? Well, by never completed, you mean like never completes in our lifetimes, but it will eventually complete. Okay. For me, it's it's not really a concern. So for me, like the benefit of being Turing complete uh, is, well, there, there are lots of benefits. One is that in practice, it, it's harder to write programs that take a long time to run. Part of the reason is just because it's harder to do so by accident. Like, again, we've banned recursion from the language, so you just got to change how you do things. When you change how to do things, that changes your mental model. It's very similar to how when you switch from a dynamic language to a typed language, it, it requires you to adopt a certain mental discipline you didn't have before. And programming in a, in a non-Turing complete language, it's the exact same transition. You acquire a new mental discipline and you start to think about your code in a different way. And both just the feature itself and that mental discipline mean you just tend to have fewer long running programs. And also like in order to be Turing complete, you have to get all sorts of other things right, which are good things in and of themselves to get right. Like you gotta have a type system or some sort of a static analysis to even be able to say that you're not Turing complete. Uh, Cause if you don't, there's lots of ways you can create infinite loops. So what, so it restricts you from doing recursion. Are there other restrictions put in place to meet this moniker, non-Turing complete? Basically, it's actually very simple to write a language that's um, not Turing complete. For people slightly more familiar with type theory, if you take any Hindley-Milner type system, or for people even more familiar with type theory, if you take system F, and you just ban recursion, it's automatically not Turing complete and a somewhat useful language if you just add some useful primitive operations. So it's, it's actually really easy to make something not Turing complete if you just don't don't allow recursion. If you allow recursion and you still want to keep it not Turing complete, then it becomes harder and there are a lot of more sophisticated languages which can deal with that. Couldn't I just put in my configuration file like while true, no op or something and it would... Well, Doll doesn't have while loops. It's a functional programming language. So what it does have is uh, terminating primitive operations. So an example would be fold, right? So given a list, there's a function called fold, which will basically sort of reduce the list into a final value. And we can prove for reasons I won't go into that that function will always terminate. And then there are the other theoretical results which show that you can implement basically anything you want to do with lists in terms of fold, more or less. You might want to do it in a more efficient way, but in theory, you could do everything in terms of fold. So if you can prove that all these operations can be done in terms of fold, then you can prove that they can terminate. And then just that's how you prove that your language just doesn't terminate for anything built on top of those primitive operations. Can I just have two files import each other? Can I make a loop that way? No, Doll has a cyclic. I mean, there are ways you can cause uh, what we call import cycles, but that's not one of them. So Doll will detect trivial import cycles where it keeps track of what imports it's visited and make sure that they don't get visited, visited again. The, but an easy way you could break it is just like have a, a web server hosting a doll configuration file like um, example.com slash one, which imports example.com slash two slash three. And you can just keep dynamically generating these on the fly, on the fly to, to trigger an infinite import loop. Uh, but again, like that, that doesn't worry me so much uh, for the same reason that, you know, having a program that takes too long to evaluate you know, doesn't worry me that much either, right? It's just like, I view it as primarily improving the user experience by trying, by doing as much as possible to prevent loops. There's still some ways that you can make things run a long time, but as long as we make a decent effort, it still improves the user experience. Are there other languages in, in common usage or, or configuration formats that, that have this property of, of being not Turing complete? Yes, actually, the most popular one, which I think most people know of, is SQL. That's a non-Turing complete language that's very, very widely used. And for a reason, again, like SQL, because it's not Turing complete, it's easy for databases to analyze and do like, you know, query optimization and things like that. A more modern example would be something like uh, Skylark, which is the language is, I, I think it's named Skylark, which is the language Basil uses for its uh, configuration language for builds. Those are the two examples off the top of my head. I think SQL is interesting. It kind of shows some of the properties you're talking about here, because you can define things in SQL. Like it, it still has the feel of a programming language, but it's definitely more restrictive in terms of what you can do and focuses more on a declarative. I mean, it's very different than your language, but it has some similarities, I think. Yeah. So one thing I was wondering, it, it sounds like if I were to build like a, a YAML parser, 
you know, where I could read that format in because I have a new programming language and it needs to understand YAML. That, I think I could do that. To, to understand this configuration format, it sounds like in my language of choice, I would have to build like an entire interpreter that understands system F and, and so yes. on. Yes. So yeah, I mean, that's exactly one of the biggest challenges for dolls that we're essentially trying to create an embeddable language that runs in all these mainstream languages, right? And if we succeed, it will actually be, I think one of the, the first ever case of that being done because most other configuration languages, the way they work is maybe it'll provide some C library like Lua, then your languages writes some sort of a wrapper around the C API, like um, you know some native interface. Um, but here we're actually doing implementations inside the host languages, like actual re-implementations. And it's significantly more challenging, but if it works, then you can do powerful things, like I mentioned before, like import functions directly into the language, which is very neat. Um, you can also provide much better support for distribution, right? Because like, obviously you can't use a C library if you want to interface with JavaScript, right? So it's much more portable to do things this way, but it's much harder. And so we spend a lot of time on making it as easy as possible to port into new languages. So what languages have implementations? So currently there are three complete implementations, one in Ruby, one in Clojure, and one in Haskell. There are several other ones in progress, some close to completion, but I'll wait until they're done before announcing them out of respect to their maintainers. And earlier you mentioned Kubernetes, I guess, I think. What domains do you see DAL being used in? Ops is far and away the most commonly used uh, domain for DAL. And the reason why is that that's where you tend to see the largest and messiest configurations. The tools that come to mind would be things like Kubernetes, CloudFormation templates, Ansible, Docker Compose, Terraform. Those are what a lot of people uh, tend to associate with this. And they all have very large, messy YAML or sometimes JSON configurations. And they kind of grown to the point where they're starting to implement these you know, DSLs, which are like a little mini programming languages inside them, especially CloudFormation and Ansible, are the, and also Terraform come to mind there. And because, because they sort of like hacked together this, this domain-specific language inside of JSON or YAML, you get kind of the worst of both worlds, which is that it's really difficult to understand because you don't, there's no editor tooling that will tell you that your, you know, ter that your, CloudFormation template is like is a valid program, right? You can tell that it's it's well-formed JSON, right? But that's not what you <laughs> you're looking for, right? What you really want is like a type checker, right? Or or a more sophisticated syntax checker that understands this domain-specific language that they've built, right? You don't you don't get that, and you also don't get the ability to like really you can't really evaluate it easily, right? You can you can run the tool, right? You can run Kubernetes and see like did I did I I mean, usually the way you verify that your configuration is safe is you do like a test deploy, like to a development cluster, like if it's Kubernetes or something like that. You don't have like a, a nice pure way to do ahead of time validation of your code. And that's one of the biggest issues that ops people run into is that for them, it's really difficult to do safe test deploys, uh, especially in CI, right? You don't want to like deploy, you don't want to like for every single revision that you check into master to first check that you can safely deploy a, you know, a test development cluster. That's totally unrealistic and doesn't scale. Right. I, the ideal would be like you got you just do type checking, right? And if it type checks, that's fast. You merge, you're done, and you know it's going to deploy successfully. So is that the market that you're going after with this tool? Would be ops? Yes, absolutely. So one thing I like to do, uh, and this is actually inspired by a great book, which I recommend to all listeners, called Crossing the Chasm. It's a book that was originally written for startups, for how startups could achieve mainstream traction success. But it's also an excellent playbook for uh, tech evangelism or getting open source tools, frameworks, or technologies mainstream traction as well. And one of the things the book talks about is that you need to be very careful to choose a very narrow market when you start out because you're not going to get any mainstream traction unless you're perceived to be best in class for the use case that you've chosen to address. And you can't be the best in class when you have very limited development resources if you choose to address a very broad use case, right? If I said, you know, DAL is going to be the configuration language that replaces all configuration languages, right? There's, uh, that would be too ambitious. It would, we would sputter out pretty early and we would never gain any traction. But it is very realistic for me to say, you know, DAL is going to become the best in class solution for ops related configurations. We do have the developer 
bandwidth and features in order to be able to deliver on that promise. And if we deliver on that and we promote that perception, then it's easier to then grow into a slightly more broader use case. Like maybe, okay, maybe later on we're trying to displace YAML in general, as opposed to just YAML for ops. So yes, we definitely do very conscientiously target the ops use case. And when we design the language and we, when we allocate our, what we call our language budget, for like what complexity to add to the language, we're very careful to add language features, which get us to that goal of improving the ops experience rather than trying to tackle a more ambitious goal of being one configuration language to rule them all. That's interesting. What is an example of a feature that you've added to make ops better or that you've taken this perspective on? So the biggest one would be semantic integrity checks because that's the thing that gives ops people a lot of assurance that what they're delivering is, is never going to break or change. Because the semantic integrity checks verify that you can't perturb something, so it's safe. And you can also cache something, so it's then easy to subsequently redeploy. Sometimes it's not about language features. It can be about integrations. So for example, we have you know, DAL, the Kubernetes project, which provides bindings to Kubernetes. Uh, we also provide tools that do bi-directional conversion between DAL and JSON and YAML. Because for brownfield deployments for large enterprise companies, ease of migration is really important. It's also not about even that kind of feature. It's also about like just things like how easy is it to install? Is it just how easy is it to obtain? Like, is there a Docker image for it? How big is the executable? Is it statically linked? How many platforms do you support? Do you have a package for my favorite operating system distribution? Little details like that really all contribute to, in this case, you know, the ops use case where they really care about distribution. It's a really big deal for them. Um, very low dependencies. Ops people hate things with lots of dependencies <laughs> because they're sort of they're they're at the bottom of their company stack. Everything depends on them, so they want to have as few dependencies as possible. Why there's like often a flight to things like Bash or JSON and YAML, which are very dependency minimal. And that feature that you mentioned, generating JSON or YAML from your from your DAL configuration, that sounds like that would be very useful if I was trying to like push adoption of this, right? I wanted yeah. some flexibility. I wanted the ability to have functions, but my tool or my team, they still expect like a YAML config. Yes. So it makes it very easy to integrate with tools that have a hard requirement that things have to be YAML. And, and I think one of the things that has made Dull really easy to get into companies is because it doesn't really require any permission from uh, leadership to try it out. Cause like one of the, I remember back when I was at Twitter, like I was a big Haskell evangelist back then, never got it adopted. And part of the reason why it was so difficult to get it adopted is just because the Haskell tool chain is so hard to get into the door, right? Let's say we have these, you know, CentOS machines running a really old operating system and they need to, and then maybe they want it to be, maybe they want JHC to be installed as a certain type of package is appropriate for the operating system. And then even then you got to get like get permission from the ops team to get that package installed in production systems just so you can begin to use let's say Haskell uh, or our scripts let's say whereas like you know doll you can just get it as a let's say three megabyte Linux totally stackly linked executable so like you, it's just like one curl away from being able to run it on your system right so you don't really need to ask anybody to try it out um, you can use it in your pipelines without any real permission from other. I mean, you should get permission from other people in general, but you can at least try it out and demonstrate value without um, having to go through any other teams to get it installed and get it going. And what what is the thing that people have the most problem with when they when they come to it? If I want to, you know, start using this for my Kubernetes config, where where will I get tripped up? I think the biggest issue people run into at the moment is due to bottlenecks in the type checker which we should be able to resolve soon in a few months, but I'll still explain the problem, which is that in uh, the Kubernetes configuration, um, one of the big cells of DAL for Kubernetes is that if it type checks in DAL and then you generate Kubernetes from that, you know you're not going to get a bad Kubernetes configuration, right? At least, I mean, your system could still break for reasons that are specific to your company, right? But at least you, you know it's going to be a valid Kubernetes deployment. Um, a lot of people really hate finding out that their deployment broke at runtime for Kubernetes. <laughs> and so what they're trying to do is they're trying to encode as much information in DAL's type system as possible. So like the Kubernetes, the DAL to Kubernetes project is I think one of the larger DAL open source projects. And I think it has something around 13,000 lines of code, a DAL code. And um, because they're trying to, they have a very detailed and granular usage of the types to make sure that if, um, to make invalid Kubernetes configurations unrepresentable in, in DAL um, so that people have as much assurance 
in, in the generated Kubernetes configuration. But as a result, that really stresses the type checker, both because of the, the granularity of the types and also the size of the configuration. So we have people who are currently working on uh, optimizing that. And this is, it's just work that needs to be done. Well, I can see why that would be a huge feature, like type check your your cube configs. Like that could be that could be the tagline right there. Obviously, the language does much more than that. What a question that was coming to my mind when I was looking this over was like I understand there's these problems with with having repetition, you know, in your configs and wanting this sort of flexibility. It doesn't seem to me like the obvious solution was to write like a a special purpose, you know, non-Turing complete language. Where what are the roots of of the idea behind this language? Yeah, so the language didn't originally start from me saying like I want to make ops better. Right? <laughs> Back when I created it, it was more just me trying to answer that academic question: Are people okay with programmable configuration languages if they're not Turing complete? And, and you can see some of that in the in the language design, right? So the language has a very Haskell-like syntax because when I originally made it, I thought it would only be used to configure Haskell programs, right? So it was it was optimized for that very narrow market of Haskell programmers that I was originally trying to address, even narrow, much narrower than ops, <laughs> I can tell you. So the syntax still is Haskell-like because of because of that origin story. Um, but then a lot of people who started using it in Haskell, you know, started to form me like, you know, you're really onto something, and you could actually use this for things like ops related use cases if you just took this all the way so i just that really like and so this that really encouraged me to invest more into this project and try to make it applicable to a much broader range of users and try to make it a real thing uh and now the main thing that sustains my interest in this project even as the scope continues to broaden is that i really feel it's like a nice way to show the value of total functional programming especially with regards to um, language security because you can see that being like a, a really hot theme these days with things like both cybersecurity, blockchain, cryptocurrencies. A lot of people are now thinking a lot about language security and what do we need to do to make programming languages that are easy to analyze, easy to understand, easy to secure. And I feel like a lot of language security principles haven't really made it to the mainstream because there hasn't been like a killer app that has taken it all the way and shown a viable practical use case for it. I think DAL can be one of those killer apps showing the value of total functional programming and language security. You mentioned uh, total functional programming. What I don't think we've touched on that term yet. Oh, yes. Uh, total functional programming is a programming where, I don't know what the pedantic definition is, but I think <laughs> of it as like programs that aren't going to crash or hang or throw exceptions, meaning that evaluations, if, if the program type checks, then evaluation will always succeed. Because the C is kind of like a, a E itself is kind of a broad word, but like, for example, like Doll has optional values, kind of like nullable values in, in programming languages, right? And so like, you know, a combination could succeed and return what Doll calls null or none, right? Some people might say like that's still a failure, right? So it failed at runtime, but it's still nice that you it won't hang, it won't crash, or throw exceptions or segfall or what have you. If the in particular if things type check, you just know it's going to work. Right? It's just one less thing to wake you up in the middle of the night or late on weekends when you just want, like, I, I really like software that is low maintenance, right? That's kind of the reason, one of the reasons I got into Haskell in the first place is I really love that. Um, so I really love um, knowing that if adult configuration type checks that I'm done, like my, my obligation as a programmer ends there and I can move on to the next thing uh, without, you know, that lingering in the back of my mind that I might be interrupted later on to revisit something that I've sort of washed my hands of. So I just really like things being done and total functional programming really gives you that feeling of satisfaction and completion that you don't need to revisit old work anymore. It, it is interesting that you found that ops was the area where like heavy use of a type system could really be a game changer. That's very interesting insight. Well, I shouldn't take the credit for that because the only, the only part where my input was, was figuring out that it would be good for configuration languages. Because uh, one of the, thing, the issues I ran into early on when trying to design what were the set of primitives for DAL is that it's very hard to figure out like what, what is a sufficiently large set of primitives that are total, but still useful enough, right? So I was trying to think about, okay, what's the domain I'm trying to target here? Like it would be like high performance computing or, or I don't know, what, what have you. 
And I was like, well, what if I just said configuration languages, right? Because the expectation there is so low that you don't need to really have a very large set of primitives to deliver uh, on the promise. And then it also makes it much easier to implement the language again, because if, if we want to have a portable language in multiple with multiple bindings, we really need to keep the set of primitives as, as low as possible. Um, so configuration, I chose just for ease uh, more than anything else. Uh, it was the users who then formed me that like this was really taking off in the ops use case. And that's when I began to realize that there was a fit between types and reducing repetition and maintainability. And then this use case of like these large and sprawling YAML configurations. And then I just really lent into that. Oh, that's a great story. So Gabe, I think that this has been uh, a lot of fun. I've learned a lot and I think the listeners will as well. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for building Doll. Where uh, can listeners find out more about you and about Doll? The best entry point to the language is the official website, which is doll-lang.org. If you don't know how to spell it, it's d-h-a-l-l-l-a-n-g.org. I have a blog called haskellforall.com, although now I blog a little bit about Doll more often. So I don't know <laughs> if I should also call it like haskellanddollforall.com. But that, that's my personal blog that I sometimes use. This is Adam Gordon-Bell for Software Engineering Radio. Thank you for listening. As a software engineer, chances are you've crossed paths with MongoDB at some point, whether you're building an app for millions of users or just figuring out a side hustle. As the most popular non-relational database, MongoDB is intuitive and incredibly easy for development teams to use. Now with MongoDB Atlas, you can take advantage of MongoDB's flexible document data model as a fully automated cloud service. MongoDB Atlas handles all the costly database operations and admin tasks you'd rather not spend time on, like security, high availability, data recovery, monitoring, and elastic scaling. Try MongoDB Atlas for free today. Visit mongodb.com cloud to learn more. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening. <laughs>